Hello, and welcome to Inside the Sound of Fear. The Rite of Spring, one of the most recorded pieces in classical music. A musical choreographic work representing pagan Russia, unified by a single idea, the mystery and great surge of the creative power of spring. Part one, introduction, ritual of abduction, spring rounds, ritual of the rival tribes, procession of the sage, dance of the earth. Part two, mystic circles of the young girls, glorification of the chosen one, evocation of the ancestors, ritual action of the ancestors, sacrificial dance. Now please enjoy Music of the Wild. Now came the subtle sounds of dawn, a soft caress of wind through a healthy crop of barley, the beating of tiny wings from a darting lark or swallow. Jagged peaks rose to the heavens, protecting and isolating the valley like a vast cradle of thorns. A golden sunrise peeked over the eastern mountains and touched the village below, illuminating the front doors of about two dozen humble wooden stone buildings. The tall new master gazed down at the valley's expanse from the battlements of the Black Tower, the highest point of Fader Schloss. The entirety of that crumbling medieval fortress was now, thanks to a surprise inheritance from a dwindling bloodline on the European side of his family, his. One by one, the villagers emerged from houses below, making their way across the dark soil to tend another day of farming. It had been another high-yield year, with field crops, meat, and dairy all abundant and of the highest quality. The master turned his attention to the portable phonograph on the stone table next to him. He reached down and carefully operated the brass-handled crank. The cylinder spun beneath the stylus. Through the amplifying horn came eerie echoes of flutes and violins. The first few bars of the morning mood prelude by Grieg. Far less resonant than hearing it performed by live players, of course, though it was the next best thing to having an orchestra up there with him. The music suited the scene and brought a rare, warm smile to the master's lean face. The gentle melody abruptly stopped. The phonograph's mechanism caught on an imperfection on the cylinder, or perhaps it was simply the morning frost. The music being cut short angered him. He tried to force the crank, yet it stubbornly refused to give. Damn, he muttered. These days, he had no patience for machines that didn't work properly. He stuffed his hands into the warm pockets of his deep pile camel hair coat and thought briefly of hurling the phonograph from the battlements onto the circular driveway below. He closed his eyes, took in a deep breath of air that chilled his throat, held it, then exhaled steam out into the morning sky. He knew that if he didn't keep his temper in check, no one here would take him seriously. An American, 
stepping into the local lord's oversized shoes. What was that anti-stress trick his alienist had taught him? Breathe in for four seconds, hold it for seven, exhale for eight. He did it. And after two rounds of measured breathing, his composure returned. Damn my temper. I'll deal with this later, he grumbled to himself, picking up the heavy phonograph. With the angular machine resting heavily in his arms, he navigated a narrow spiral staircase that led back inside. Compared to the sunny glow at the battlements, the interior of the castle was icy gray-green. It was illuminated poorly by the candlelight flames of an outdated gaslight pipe system, and its high ceilings drew the gaze into the darkness. The corridors were always coldest, isolated arteries through the old stone castle, separated from the fireplaces on every floor by closed doors in order to keep the rooms warm. In this particular hallway, there was an oval mirror with a brass frame he made a point of avoiding. When he had first moved in, after each morning constitutional, he would check his handsome appearance in the incalculably old, burnished reflection. On one occasion, he had been startled by a shadowy shape that suggested a hulking man looming over his left shoulder. He snapped his head around to address Johann the butler or whomever it was that had been lurking there, yet there had been only air. It hadn't been the first weird event he had encountered in the gloomy castle either. There were paintings and tapestries that shifted positions with their brethren overnight. In the library, he sometimes found himself reshelving certain leather-bound volumes that he had no memory of reading. One of those wayward tomes had caught his attention before he put it away. Natural Histories of the Celtic Peoples of Austria. The book described a local archaeological site where a pillar dedicated around 300 AD to the old god Nodens Silvanus, the Green Man, had been found. Then there were the sounds. Creaking, knocking, unexplained thuds. Some of this was to be expected in such an ancient structure, yet such an obscene amount. The disturbing noises robbed him of much-needed sleep. Odd, also, that on the same nights, the servants never noticed or reported anything unusual. The inherent damp of the Austrian weather penetrated the stone walls. Greenish mold frequently appeared amongst the stones on the first floor and needed to be scrubbed away before it spread. He hated getting a nose full of the sharp, pungent scent. It reminded him of rot and decay. He quickened his pace through the hallway, opened an iron-bound oak door, and descended another, more luxuriously appointed staircase, this one draped in crimson carpet that welcomed him to the main suite of rooms. The foyer had splendid frescoes and a black-and-white checkerboard marble floor. Waiting to attend him there, slightly reminiscent of chess pieces awaiting his next move, were two servants, a tall, white-haired man with a deeply lined face, and his plump, brown-haired daughter. The morning sun shone through the segmented windows behind them, 
and also illuminated the gloss of several oil paintings depicting the master's mustache-sporting ancestors upon the walls. A comforting heat radiated from the 15-foot-wide stone fireplace. This was one of the brightest rooms of the castle, and he was comfortable here. Good morning, his voice rolled out, deep and soft. The father and daughter bowed formally in response. The daughter spoke first. Uh, Master Federer, will you require breakfast? Thanks, Eva, yes. Please, bring it to the library. He'd been practicing the line earlier. His German showed signs of improvement, he hoped. Her father, we received a note from Horst, the town innkeeper, sir. A package arrived for you. Shall I retrieve it, or... Unlike his daughter, the old man was not able, or perhaps willing, to drop the formal sir, despite Federer's insistence. Like everything lately, it set him on edge. Give it time, Federer thought. Ways change. Thanks for the offer, Johan. I think I'll go into town myself. Still carrying the uncomfortable phonograph, he looked out the windows. The sky was relatively clear. First day the sun's been out in over a week. They'll be practicing for fashing on the village green. Then, frowning at the horizon, he added, I'd have to be an idiot not to ride myself while I have the chance. Looks like the next thunderstorm will be rolling in tonight. Good for the harvest, my lord. Bad for keeping oneself dry. Thanks, Johann. Federer tromped off to the library. Good old Johann is being protective. I'm the one who should be making more of an effort to fit in, he thought. It would be one thing if I were merely a guest. I'm here to stay, though. And to them, bizarre as it sounds, I represent the old aristocracy, proud traditions that preceded the Great War, spending hours sequestered in my library writing, well, listening to my phonographs, if I'm being perfectly honest, probably isn't helping. Johan and Eva are my bridge to the people. After a year, I don't know why I'm still uncomfortable around them. They're my servants, for God's sake. Europe is changing. Lots of new liberal thinking in Vienna. Lots of exciting new art. Am I going to shut myself away and hope that tide of new thinking makes its way out here to the eastern fringe? Or am I going to do something to bring it here? We must get out of the 19th century. Yet how can I do something like usher in the future unless I first win their hearts? His thoughts shifted to more immediate practical matters. The round trip could take a couple of hours, more if he became distracted by something in town. The woods that shaded the road on the way down to the village were quiet and pretty, though treacherous after nightfall. On more than one occasion there, he had glimpsed the flash of reflective wolf eyes. He reached the wood-paneled library, his sanctum, and the first place to which he had turned his attentions when he arrived. Federer gave his arms a rest by putting the malfunctioning machine on the work table. Solitude and a change of scenery, he had thought, were exactly the formula he needed to finally get some work done. Back home, in Boston, he had won a poetry contest as a young man 
and published new work every year thereafter for a time, though the last time had been years ago. Things had gone wrong with the move, and the energy spent managing the gang of persistent related problems sapped his drive for creativity and conspired to keep him unhappy. Crates containing the neat black notebooks in which he did his writing had ended up in Hungary. He had brought only one notebook with him on the train, though his misery over the missing ones had been for naught. It took him far longer than he liked to fill one with ideas, bad ones at that, except perhaps one inspired piece about the Sultan of Indies after the Arabian Nights. Back in Boston, his work had been distracted by family and friends. Here, he was distracted by the movers damaging one of his prized photographs, and his conversation with a soft-spoken engineer who had advised him about the $3,000 of repairs the crumbling castle urgently needed. After he had tracked down the missing crates, he rewarded himself with his favorite pastime, listening to music. He now had five phonographs, two semi-portables, one standing cabinet model fashioned in Edison cement, a brass-appointed Amberola, and a Berliner gramophone that played shellac discs instead of cylinders. Federer pulled off his gloves and tinkered with the ailing machine. He gently lifted the amplifying horn, moved it aside, then unlocked and removed the gleaming cylinder. He approached the window to examine it more closely in the light. Flawless. He reverently filed it back in his bookcase alongside its brothers, neatly arranged like scrolls in an ancient library. With a magnifying lens, he examined the delicate, oiled gears in the spindle. He spotted the problem. Some kind of dirt. A leaf or seed pod from a local plant must have found its way into the mechanism somehow. With long tweezers, he removed the offending plant matter, then dabbed the mechanism clean and applied a fine oil where the plant mass had been. He manually moved the machinery and listened with pleasure to the soft, unobstructed clicking of the parts. How shall I test it? He went over to the bookcase and picked out another recording, Vorschach's Slavonic Dances, loaded in the phonograph and turned the crank. It played flawlessly, and he savored the sound. Pretty, swirling melodies, cut with a touch of sadness, filled the room with energy and echoes of traditions long past. His mind was completely immersed in the music, spellbound. When the cylinder finished, it occurred to him that he should start the journey into town. He wished he could have gone on listening, yet he was growing impatient with himself, the so-called new lord, for thinking of putting his responsibility second to his pleasure. He emerged from the library in a serious mood and encountered Ava in the hallway, bringing in breakfast on a covered silver tray. As he breezed by, he said, Change of plan, Ava. I'll ride into town now. Master Fedora, she said, you must eat. He stopped and turned on his heel. I'll have something at the inn that'll kill two flies with one swat, he said coldly. And don't tell me what I must do. She stood there holding the breakfast tray, cheeks flushed with embarrassment. I, I, I'm sorry, I, I only meant... He broke off and walked on, immediately regretting his outburst, yet too self-conscious to apologize. Oh, for a good night's sleep. 
with all the weird events plaguing him lately, he was on edge. Yet that was no excuse to snap at poor Eva. He cloaked himself in silence, thinking of ways he could make it up to her. A more sizable bonus at Christmas? A trip to Shopper now to visit her cousins? He would think of something. At the stables, he donned his black riding gear, mounted his favorite horse, and thundered past the iron gate down a stretch of rough mountain road. The woods were dim and sweet-smelling, with verdant holly shrubs bearing bright red fruit and huge gnarled oak trees that rose high, lining a path littered with fallen leaves of yellow and red. He was distracted by a howl, a low keening that made the hairs on the back of his neck and arms stand erect. Wolves in the middle of the day? It didn't really sound like wolves. His body nevertheless told him primal danger was near. Shadowed tree trunks encroached further upon the path the deeper he plunged into the woods. Out of the corner of his eye, he thought he spied a tall man dressed in black, standing amongst the trees. Yet there was no time for Faderer to direct his attention. He was suddenly aware of a man in the center of the road, face contorted in a silent scream of horror, waving him down. He reeled his horse violently to one side, avoiding the man, barely, and stopped. When he looked back, nothing. Silence. He steadied his horse's nervous snorting by patting the massive neck reassuringly. A hallucination? Like the mirror? It was so vivid. The man was dressed in black clothes with a priest's collar. How could he have possibly imagined a detail like that? What on earth was happening to him? First the dark figure in the looking glass that made no sound, now that awful keening connected to nothing. His heart was racing. He repeated the breathing exercise. Four, seven, eight. After calming himself, he rode on. The woods parted to reveal sunlit fields and farmers. People waved while his horse trotted by, welcoming him, and Federer regarded each one. Round, pink faces. In truth, he still had trouble telling most of them apart. He was thinking how he could make a better effort to get to know the people, when he heard the distant sound of a violin. He followed it over a nearby hill to the clearing of a village green. Several musicians were seated there, playing together in practice for the upcoming festival. What new music was this? The violins and celli played violent, rhythmic notes that stabbed at the air, gathered volume, then suddenly stopped. Next, a beautiful melody pushed its way through, only to be swallowed up again by more musical stabs. This was chaos, madness, and also thrilling. Music that attracted and repelled him in equal measure. He stayed mounted and did his best to project a calm exterior. The players finished the performance with a final boom of the bass drum. Federer dismounted and clapped enthusiastically, approaching the stout, gray-haired conductor and extended his hand. Monsieur, Federer said. Rot, the man said. He was going bald with a white goatee that accentuated his face's satyr-like qualities. Heinrich Roth from Vienna. 
superb performance wrought. What was it? Stravinsky, my lord Fedor, the Sacre du Printemps, the Rite of Spring. And that violent rhythm, that's the way it was intended to be played? Rot took a deep breath. I hope my lord is not too put off by the piece. It's been a difficult rehearsal, getting the players to represent it properly. Put off? Heavens no. It was quite remarkable. I'm remarking on it right now, in fact, he said jokingly. Ah, good, said Rot, straight face. Then you know more about the music than the Parisians. Federer looked at him quizzically. There was a riot in Paris about ten years ago when they first played this, Rot said. The performance was booed, brought to a halt. The composer was devastated, of course. The people were not ready. A few years later, the Parisians came around. One or two critics wrote of the beauty of it, the truth. Then a few more. And now it is known to be what it is, a work of genius. Federer imagined the heavily cultured Parisians in their tuxedos and evening dresses, outraged to the point that they dropped their facades, transforming into an angry mob. Pitchforks and torches, a second French Revolution, demanding the head of the composer. Maestro, I know you're busy, he said. I won't burden you now. After the festival, though, I hope you and your players will join me for lunch. Rot bowed. We would be honored, my lord. Two violinists who had been eavesdropping clapped at that. A heartbeat later, a handful of others joined in the applause. This group display of appreciation touched Federer's heart in a way he did not anticipate. His chest tightened, and he swallowed in a dry throat. At last, he would not be alone. He would share an afternoon with these talented musicians, and he would make it a lunch to remember. He kept his feelings restrained, trying not to express his emotion to the players, however much he liked them. Carry on, he said then put his boot in the stirrup and swung up into the saddle. He rode into town, a collection of tall, peak-roofed old houses with vibrant gardens. He neared the center, acknowledging whoever regarded him, making his way down the cobbles to the two-story inn that doubled as a post office. The business was run by a couple he knew by name. Federer couldn't help notice an elegant, dark-brown carriage parked in front. The village didn't often have visitors. His curiosity was kindled. While he hitched his horse, a black-bearded man with massive forearms threw open the front door, grinning broadly. My lord, what a pleasant surprise! I dare not tell him about that horrid apparition in the woods. The townsfolk think I'm a strange enough already. Federer took off his riding gloves to shake the innkeeper's rough hand. Good morning, Horst. I received your note. A package? Ah, yes, please come in. We have guests. Perhaps you'd like to join them for lunch. Lunch? Already? It's that late? It's afternoon! In any case, please come in and have tea. Mirella is brewing some. Horst? Yes, my lord? Please don't call me my lord. It doesn't suit me. Call me Federer or... Use my first name, Rainer. As you wish, 
all men are created equal, Horst. Social class is quickly becoming a thing of the past. As you wish, <laughs> Mr. Federer. You've been here over a year now, after all. I have no wish to make you uncomfortable. They entered the rustic, warmly decorated main room. The front desk was of polished mahogany, and the air carried a faint scent of burnt sage. Christian objects were placed upon the walls, tiny guardians against some ancient, forgotten dread. Horst led him across the hardwood to his best table. Mr. Federer, Horst said in a low voice, you must meet our new guest. She is most, ah, uh, interesting. She? Oh, yes, Horst spoke dreamily. Lady Dianthe. I believe she's Greek. Married? Horst winked in response. I don't believe so. A door closed upstairs. A solid-looking man with eyes a size too small for his meat slab of a face lumbered down, causing the stairs to protest audibly. Horst politely excused himself. At that moment, Horst's wife, conservatively dressed to the chin beneath a crisp white apron, emerged from the kitchen bearing a pot of steaming tea. After one or two words with the stranger, Horst went back behind the front desk, rummaging through the latest mail delivery. Here it is, from Hallstatt. Marella poured the sweet-smelling brew into a cup right under Federer's nose. Hello, Marella. Thank you. He was especially appreciative, being chilled from his ride. The tea was hot and delicious. Horst approached Federer's table with a shipping crate the size of a suitcase and put it down on one of the empty chairs. Federer glanced over to the small-eyed man who was peering cautiously over the top of a newspaper back at him, then turned his attention to the crate, puzzling over who might have sent it. He knew he had distant relations in Hallstatt, though no one with whom he'd ever spoken or written. Yet another mystery. The rain-soaked postage indicated the crate had passed through Hungary on its way from its point of origin in Germany. He carefully removed the wrappings. Horst assisted him in prying open the lid. Marella hovered close, slowly pouring fresh tea into Federer's cup. The men worked the lid free. Federer carefully examined the crate's contents. Nestled securely in packing straw were a smooth teakwood box and a rather old-fashioned sword sheathed in a brown leather scabbard. He brought the sword out first. It looked Roman, a one-handed sword, like the centurions used to carry. Or was it more of a Viking make? A straight, simple blade, in any case, so well cared for that it looked no more than a hundred years old. The scabbard was decorated with a few early Christian symbols of polished silver. He gripped the bright pommel and drew the blade in a single careful motion. He could smell the weapon oil. The metal gleamed in the light. Closely examining the edge with his thumb, Federer drew a painless bead of blood. The tiny drop ran down the length of the blade and settled at the handguard. He produced a white silk handkerchief and blotted it. 
He sheathed the weapon and placed it to one side of the open crate, then took out its traveling companion, the box. Roughly the size of a baguette, the box's smooth-grained exterior had an iron hinge. The lid was emblazoned with his own family's heraldic shield, the great Mesobolanus oak tree. Opening it, he beheld a brilliantly polished bronze medallion with the same image. When he handled the medallion, he had an odd sensation, like someone was tugging at an invisible string attached to his forehead. Horst and Morella stared at him like there had been some unusual change in his face. Incredible. He rustled through the package for an accompanying letter. It was empty, leaving him mystified. Who might have sent it, and why? They suit you, my lord, Mirella said. Federer looked at her blankly, his mind preoccupied by the contents of the crate. Thank you. Mirella pulled Horst off to the kitchen. Federer held the medallion at eye level, then raised the chain over his head and put it on, tucking the medallion under his shirt. The metal was cold against the flesh of his neck, and he was overcome by an odd sensation of deja vu. He looked around, calm, comfortable. He was more alert than the first day he had arrived in Austria. His social anxiety took a back seat to his newfound confidence. He belonged. The small-eyed man put down the newspaper and stood, looking to the top of the stairs where a slender woman in a dark green velvet and lace dress had appeared. She glided down the staircase slowly. The small-eyed man stiffly bowed and pulled out her chair. She sat without acknowledging the man's presence. Federer found it difficult not to stare. He was usually shy around women, not now. He approached, and she met his gaze with amazing light hazel-colored eyes, the color of tree leaves in autumn. The small-eyed man defensively interposed himself between the two of them. The lady gracefully rose, extending a supple hand. Federer took it and touched his lips to her knuckle. Her hair was a beautiful mane of thick black curls, and her scent was of the outdoors. Mint, lavender, sandalwood, and something spicy he couldn't quite place. Enchanted was all Federer could say. She glanced him over. Don't you look dashing. Allow me to introduce the Lady Dianthe, said another man's voice. This one was black-haired with a thick mustache. He stepped off the bottom stair and approached the table. My bodyguards, Dianthe said. Why don't you join us for lunch? You're the new owner of the castle, are you not? Her boldness surprised him. She must have been a photographer's model, or perhaps an actress. Indeed I am, he said. Ah, Lord Federer then. Splendid. Her manner was well practiced. Was she a young flapper, intelligent beyond her years, or an ancient creature who somehow still possessed the blush of youth? Please, call me Rainer. All right, Rainer, she purred. Then you must call me Dianthe. I'm passing through on my way to Prague. 
Have you heard the wonderful music they're going to play at Fashing? I did. She loves music. Perhaps I can play her something from my collection. Rot, the conductor, seems like a good man. That music, Rainer. She closed her eyes, savoring the thought. That is the sound of truth. Indeed. So, you're passing through? I've only recently arrived myself. Been here barely a year. He tried his best to conceal his Yankee accent. Originally from the United States. Boston, he said. An American. She smirked. You are aware of the history behind your new house, aren't you? I understand one of my ancestors, Duke Fader, oversaw the construction in the 13th century, he said cautiously. I'm not exactly sure when the extra er was added to the name or when the title was lost and we became mere lords sometime in the 18th, I believe. For which? Both. A few years ago, writing a history paper, he had been disturbed to learn that Duke Fader was one of Western Europe's most bloodthirsty tyrants. The morbid life of the nobleman warlord had been partially recounted in Laszlo Taroxi's 1729 work, Tragica Historia. Fader found it fascinating the native Austrians didn't share the same negative picture of the duke. Horst lionized the man, describing him as a distinguished leader of heroic character, a protector of the realm. Who knows what form of history they taught the children here. Would you like to see the castle? He said. I'm afraid I'll be leaving tomorrow, she sighed. He pressed the point. Tonight, perhaps. Rainer, I've heard that wolves run in the woods near here. Gods protect us all. Would that not be unsafe for a lady? Gods. Bring your bodyguards. Between the three of us, we'll make sure you arrive in one piece. The fortress is at the base of the mountain. Dianthe hesitated, said, I would only agree if you could please prepare guest rooms for us. It would be far too late to return to the inn after you've taken me on a proper tour of your beautiful house. She leaned back in her chair, letting Federer get a good look. Was this the result she was angling for all along? He hoped so. I'd be honored, he said. Her lips curved into a smile. They lingered at the inn after lunch, consuming measures of tea and polite conversation. At sundown, Dianthe's bodyguards put on riding gear and sabers and followed Fader up to the castle. When they entered the darkened woods, Fader cast wary glances all around, yet noticed no wolfish predators or mysterious clerical apparitions lying in wait. He escorted the carriage through the woods, past the black entry gate, and onto the circular driveway. When they trotted up, the sky gave birth to a terrific thunder shower. Federer shielded her with his cloak. He let his guest and her entourage through the castle's double doors and onto the black and white marble floor of the foyer. Johann and Eva were waiting to attend them. Mr. Federer, it's good to see you, said Johann 
And we have guests. At last. Good evening, Johan. Thank you. I'm afraid we got a bit drenched. Very good, sir. The servants busied themselves gathering cloaks and wet riding gear, then joined the guests by the huge, crackling fireplace. Dianthe said, My bodyguards will stay here if you don't mind, Johan. Mr. Federer and I have a castle to see. Federer offered his arm and happily guided Dianthe through his ancestral home's vaulted passageways. Soon they reached the library. When they entered, he said, Would you like to hear some music? He placed the ancient sword on his desk. Certainly. She moved from one phonograph to the next, curiously examining each one. With care, he retrieved a music cylinder from the bookshelf and loaded it into a portable phonograph. He turned the crank handle and the beautiful music came forth. Die Flydermouse by Strauss. When the waltz swept in, she danced, miming for herself an invisible partner about his size. Her movements were graceful. He wished he could abandon the crank and join her. With a change in the rhythm, she adjusted the gait of her whirls and steps, showing off her skill. His desire grew with each phrase of the music, and he couldn't stop himself from laughing. The graceful way she moved her body pushed everything else out of his mind, except a singular need to be with her. He imagined her lying next to him, soft skin illuminated by candlelight. In his thoughts, she stroked the lean surface of his chest with delicate fingers. Her beauty was intoxicating. Dianthe, may I join you? He stood up, letting go of the machine. The music slowed to a stop. His heartbeat thrummed in his ears, yet his courage was unflagging. When he came close, he again noticed her unusual scent. He placed one large hand on her delicate one and the other upon her waist. He knew the basic steps of ballroom, though he hadn't practiced in years. His desire for her was growing. He tried distracting himself with unpleasant things. His father's death, the chaos of the move, clumsy social encounters with the locals. Her palm was warm against his. He led her in the odd, quiet dance, shoes whispering on the faded oriental rug. He held her close, and she stared into his eyes, enigmatic, unbearable. He had to know what she was thinking. She finally whispered, The resemblance is really quite incredible. He had no idea what she was talking about. Resemblance? The portraits, she said, gesturing casually to the wall behind them, a medieval painting of the duke, and another of a priest, no doubt a more recent relation priest. Also, something in the image of the duke, his disapproving look, broad shoulders, reminded him of the dark figure he had seen lurking in the mirror upstairs. He glanced back to her. You uh, think we look alike, eh? He found it hard to look at the paintings or anywhere other than her beautiful face. 
She lifted her hand and interposed it between them, placing her fingertips below his collarbone, over his clothes, on the medallion he wore. She traced a line down his shirt to his stomach. He leaned to her, and she let him taste her lips. The sensation was searing, delicate. She slowly pulled away. When he leaned in again, she tilted her head to one side and kissed his throat. Her soft lips and warm tongue wetted his skin. He closed his eyes, savoring it. Electric pleasure buzzed in his extremities, and for a moment, the world faded, like he was about to faint. This was wonderful, comfortable, like sinking into warm water. He glanced up for a moment and gazed at their reflections in the window. He was leaning backwards. He might have fallen, yet the diminutive woman was supporting his weight, keeping him upright with ease. He was lost in a euphoric whirl, like he had taken a draft of Nepenthe, the drug of which the poets of old had written. Yet her disproportionate strength bothered him. Another mystery, he would ask her. The words formed slowly in his mind. Her teeth tore into his throat. She bit off a chunk of his flesh and wolfed it down. Blood welled up and spurted from the wound. She pressed it to her mouth, sucking greedily. The shock of pain gave way to the will to survive. He strained against her impossible iron grip with all his might, trying to push her away, and failed. How is she so strong? His blood was on one of her hands when she held her wrist. He tried to twist out of her grasp, slipped free, and stumbled backwards, hand defensively covering his neck wound. He crashed into a heavy bookcase filled with music cylinders and they tumbled down all around him. She shot him an unbearable stare, a lioness caught feeding, mouth, chin, and cheeks smeared with gore. Dianthe! He kept blinking to dispel the image of the predator that had bitten him, not wanting to accept what he could plainly see. Rainer, Rainer, she said, head angled down. You are of the Duke's blood. For years, my people... The true believers have patiently awaited their next sacrifice. It is the will of Nodens Sylvanus and the gods of old that your family will always fall prey to mine. You carry the sword. You wear the medallion. You've had your year of glorification, and now your blood must return to the wild. Fertility right? He choked. Your family may have mingled its blood with the new world, yet the men of your line always return here, threatening to cut down the wild and put up the gray buildings and machines of civilization in its place. What the hell are you talking about? Who doesn't want the comforts of civilization? The wild is a single, living, breathing force. The human mind wasn't meant to comprehend it, do the blood cells of a man comprehend the man? Yet there are certain revelations, ancient rites that open the eyes of one who is willing. My people fight against the gray tide for the wild. With every muscle, 
Every fiber of ourselves we fight. We've always been here, visible only to the perceptive. We've been called many things. Maenads, Bacants, werewolves, vampires. What you would call monsters, striding through the ages, giving shape to the fear of the time. The true believers have been warriors against your kind and the gray disease you have brought to this land since the Dark Ages. A fight has been costly, though. Thousands on both sides have died. After many battles, our families came to an accord with a sacrifice. Once per generation, the heir to this castle, the land would continue to thrive without any further spilling of blood. She moved in to finish him. Fader had been edging along the wall while she spoke, one hand clamped tightly over his throat wound. He snatched up the sword and bolted through the open doorway. Flight. He ran toward the main hall. She ripped her skirt at the hem to give her a greater ease of movement and laughed out loud, loping after him, quick, strong legs overtaking him with ease, getting closer, almost upon him. He spun around, whipping the ancient sword from its sheath. Fight! He struck Dianthe across the neck with enough force to behead her, yet the blade's edge was deflected by her flesh like it was the bark of a great old tree. The cut was surprisingly slight, though there was blood. It stopped her, momentarily. They both had their hands to their necks now. She steadied herself against the opposite wall and grinned at him with wet, red teeth. Faderer's blade had glanced off her skin and lodged itself in the stone of the wall. He desperately pulled at the embedded sword once, twice, and on the third try yanked it free. Screams came from the foyer. Johan and Eva, no. He ran fast as he could to the sound. He stumbled into the room in time to see Dianthe's bodyguards hacking at the dying bodies of the butler and his daughter. Federer's strength ebbed and his body reacted slowly. Though his mind was still clear, his rage was keeping him sharp. This time he didn't resist the anger, he rode it like a wild horse. He stalked toward the murderer's sword, weightless in his hand. Dianthe's bodyguards faced him with bloodied sabers. He surprised small eyes with a fast, low sword stroke that opened his belly and spilled his guts like water. Mustache turned his weapon on its side and ran Fader through the chest. Yet the pain was not enough to stop him. His opponent pulled the weapon free and readied himself for another attack. Faderer struck first, slashing upwards across his opponent's face. Mustache's weapon clattered on the black and white tiles, and he crumpled with palms pressed to his blood-filled eyes, screaming. Two strokes, two dying opponents. It was like the old warrior duke had returned. Faderer staggered over to the fireplace, struggling to remain conscious. Rain showered the windows. Mustache's screams grew softer and less frequent. He thought of covering his ears. Suddenly, Dianthe burst out of the darkened hallway, bloody teeth bared. She lunged, and Faderer turned to face her. Back braced against the stone mantelpiece, he let the sword drop and grasped the fireplace poker with both hands, holding it out in front of him like a spear. 
She slammed into him, and the back of his head banged against the stone. Everything went bright white. The last thing he perceived was her hot, bloody breath on his neck. When he regained consciousness, shapes danced before his eyes, dark and blurry. His body lurched, yet there was no pain. The iron-tipped mahogany poker was through Dianthe's ribcage, transfixing her heart. His face, his lips, were spattered with her blood. His sense of taste was vividly alive. Tiny droplets of her burned his tongue and sizzled, sweet and spicy, down his throat when he swallowed. He pushed her limp body off to one side. Johann's bloody corpse was draped over Eva's, arms raised. The butler's last desperate acts had been trying to protect his only daughter. Looking at their corpses and those of Dianthe and her guards, realization came. He had chosen violence instead of sacrifice. In that moment, his mind grasped enough truth of the awful cycle to give him his first fleeting glimpse of the wild. Federer turned the crank of the phonograph and listened. Nothing too dissonant or modern these days. Modern composers like Stravinsky reminded him too much of Dianthe and the killings. The old symphonies from the Baroque and classical periods were now what suited him best. The heavenly beauty of Bach, the passionate contrasting melodies of Vivaldi, the brilliant mathematics of Mozart. By defeating Dianthe, he suspected he had destroyed the pact with the true believers. For a time, he lived in a constant state of fear that others would one day appear on his doorstep demanding the sacrifice, or simply out of revenge for Dianthe. No one came. He had failed to protect Eva and Johann, his bridge to the people of the village. Life for the townspeople grew harder. After that year, there were good harvests and bad, like any other rural place on earth. The horror he could not shake was that by surviving the savage bite, or perhaps by drinking the blood of his attackers, he had become more like them. His body and mind were changed infinitely more alert to the nuances of the wild. Ensconced in the castle, the sensation was controllable. He could see the apparitions whenever he wished now. The duke, the priest, the shades of his ancestors. They had been trying to warn him, trying to get him to abandon his inheritance, but he had been too stubborn to see it. One spring afternoon, he journeyed back into the woods and perceived different things beneath the shade of those trees, things that would haunt him until the end of his days. It started with a simple feeling. The quiet, wild, was busily humming all around him. A recent lightning strike had cracked and blackened an old oak, incinerating the colony of leaf-cutter ants that had made their home in the trunk. Everywhere he cast his gaze, he took in desolation. The poor remains of a hare, with brown and white fur, its throat ripped open, forever frozen in its last agonal throes. His ear directed him to the cries of violated female larks, driven by 
terrible instinct against their own need to feed, laboring to build the strongest nests. Countless hours gathering dried twigs and leaves so their bastard offspring, the ones who hadn't already been murdered in their eggs by opportunistic avian predators, would have a chance of survival in the coming weeks. Brutality, in its infinite forms, rose up around his senses like a churning, charnel wind. The smell of death was everywhere. He found it impossible to shut out. The truth of it filled him, permeated him, whistled all around him, and chilled him to the bone. After that, he never lingered long outside the walls of his ancestral home. Much like himself, Fader Schloss fell into disuse. He kept mostly to the master bedroom and library, shunning the other parts of the castle and the company of others. In the years that followed, fear of other true believers gave way to fear of himself. He had seen the results of his rage and its bottomless potential. He would rather die than kill again. So he did whatever he would to avoid conflict. He refused to become a monster, and if that meant avoiding all human contact, so be it. From time to time, he would receive visitors. Constable Mitteregger checked in on him about once a month for the first year, then once per year at Christmas time thereafter. The woman and her cronies were obviously mad, the constable had said, and that was that. Live music still called to him, a siren's song to a sailor lost at sea. Even from far away, the sustained gossamer melody of a violin or flute caused his heart to stir, reminding him too well of that afternoon when he had experienced the Sacre du Printemps for the first time and the evening he understood it, or rather, what it represented. Was Stravinsky a true believer too? Probably. These days, Federer could have been another ghost haunting the castle. Perhaps, in a way, they had succeeded in making their sacrifice, after all. Well, Federer's a fucking vampire now. Yeah, he's become one with the wild. He's become one with the wild. A monster. Yeah, he's a monster. Yeah, of yeah. some kind. What year, what year is it supposed to take place? Uh, it's 1925. It was a, a time of exploration um, in, in the Western world. I mean, there were a lot of uh, expeditions going out into the dark corners of the earth and finding, um, you know, places that had been swallowed up by jungles and forests and, and uh, things like that. So it's, it's in that period, yeah, where um, it was still, you know, very, like, almost steampunk technology, like, yeah. you know, train, people travel by train, and, uh, or you travel by boat, uh, but um, very rarely planes. Um, and it was just after the end of the First World War. Uh, so, um, you know, that was just starting. And of course, you know, uh, home Home audio was just beginning its um, its beginning, like the phonographs and and uh, uh, machines of old and the different types. It's also it's kind of a history lesson. The story about um, the first iterations of of machines that played uh, recordings. Yeah, no, it's it's um, cool that you know you don't realize that. I mean, even a record today, you could still hand crank it and get music out of it um, if you uh, you know 
put a cone up to it. I think there's a little do-it-yourself kit with a paper clip, a pencil, and a piece of paper, and you can kind of make a hand-powered turntable. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> kind well, of MacGyver it. Now, I'm in my early 50s, so I grew up listening to uh, to vinyl records. Um, and, um, and I guess that's where a lot of the inspiration for this piece came from. So just uh, I was always fascinated by the fact that you get such rich sound out of, um, you know, plastic disc. Oh, yeah. I mean... I'm still a huge vinyl fan. I grew up in a house with a lot of vinyl. And I mean, nowadays, you know, it's like the resurgence of vinyl has become pretty, it's pretty big and they're reprinting a lot of classic albums again. Yeah. And uh, I, I think it's cool that you could see even people younger than me realizing how good vinyl sounds. I mean, you actually have the music right there, tangible, it's physical. Yeah. It's a yeah. real living piece of the actual music right there. Yeah. And, and unfortunately for Fader, um, since he, even though he's sort of seeking human contact for the, the duration of the story, uh, he ultimately has to shun himself away uh, yeah. for danger of attacking right. another person. Uh, so he needs that recorded music to, you know, satisfy his uh, heart, I guess. Right. So he can still hear it. All right, man. Well, let's get into the interview here. <clears throat> so the theme of this whole uh, story was the rite of spring. And right. It, yeah. It even feels the story feels that way, because like when I think of the rite of spring, I think of, um, you know, like kind of old folklore of like people holding festivals in November, kind of like Oktoberfest and these fall festivals, which are you know, when the last of whatever thing they had is gone, right? Like usually that's, a meat. That's right. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. so I feel like he was the meat. Right. Exactly. <laughs> so like these people were the meat and like you're the last of the meat. And now a new dawn is going to come and we are entering a new season. And essentially their life was the rite of spring. The ending of these, this, uh, what was it? Like the Duke's blood, right? Right. Um, now the rite of spring can come and the land is clean, and we're ready for the next season. Right, you're 100% right. Um, that, um, the, the Celts, uh, the people that spread all over Western Europe, um, you know, including uh, England, Ireland, uh, I mean, most people that are white are Celtic in, in some way. Um, I mean, my parents are you know, German, French, uh, Spanish, and Celt part Celt, you know, um, uh, if you go way back to the old days, um, a lot of Celts practiced the fertility rite, which was, is basically what's discussed in the story, which is like, uh, you know, somebody's elected to be a sacrifice and um, they have a year of glorification where they get everything they want and then they're killed. And that this um, in ancient mythology sort of ensured the, the great harvest. So, flash forwarding to like the 20th century um, in Austria and Bavaria and a lot of parts of Northern Europe where there's a lot of Celts, um, they have Fasching, which is um, if it, the, the root of the word is uh, Fass, which is fat in, in German. Uh, and that basically symbolizes when all the meat's gone, like you said, it's down to like the fat of the, like, that's the only thing that's left. So the, <laughs> that's what they eat. And then they start preparing for the next harvest, you gotcha. know, uh, and that's when the seasons go to sleep and, you know, the cold winter comes and all that stuff. So that's why it's called that. So this is like your midsummer. Right. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. I mean, that's, that's essentially what that movie is. I mean, it's a very like 
kind of word for word tale of like some, you know, ancient Scandinavian folklore. Yeah. I loved Midsummer. Oh yeah. Midsummer is great. It's, I think that's also a good rep, um, kind of observation. Like in the story, he's like our, our main character, uh, Say, say his name for me. So I'm oh, uh, Faderer. Fa- Faderer. I, won't, I keep wanting to say Lord Fa- Vader. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, he he thinks it's crazy that these people don't want technology. He's like, well, why wouldn't you want the modern comforts of the world? And it's kind of like in that movie Midsommar when these outsiders are like, you guys are fucking crazy. You're doing all this. But like, as crazy as what they're doing, it might be, these people seem to be, it. it, it is a cult in a way, but like almost seems to be a very these people have agreed upon this and this is part of their culture. You know, like they don't look at death the same way we look at death. And this is a tradition. Yeah. And this is kind of like that. I mean, it's a little more sinister than tradition. Yeah. I mean, well, they, they, it's, it's embedded in several generations of past teaching. So I I think I, I allude to the fact that like the Duke is venerated in this village as being some sort of a protector and, uh, you know, like a, a really good guy. I basically ripped that off of the, like the legends of Dracula in, um, in, uh, Romania, you know, he's, a, he's like a state hero there, uh, and everywhere else in the world because of Bram Stoker's novel, um, he's, you know, an evil, like demonic <laughs> warlord at the very least, um, and possibly a monster. So, you know, uh, it, it really, um, it depends on, like it, I guess it's it's a, suppose it's a mirror of nationalism. Like it, it's that's the way the local people feel about him, and thus they've also embraced these traditions, which have been passed down from generation to generation. And maybe their meanings have been partially lost to some of them, but they're the the whole community knows from their parents uh, and their parents' parents that these are good things. And, and you know, that's the reason you have food on your table and stuff like that. So I think everybody just takes it for granted that things are that way. Yeah. I mean, w- your socialization is built off of the culture you're raised around. So, you know, I mean, if you're raised inside of um, a cul-de-sac with a gate and that's all you knew, then anything else is weird, scary, or, you know, unknown. Right. So Fader's problem, or Faderer's problem, is that he inherits this castle and he's brought in, and he's an American. He's from Boston. He doesn't believe in any of these traditions, and so his the reason he's so sort of transfixed by his uh, presence, his own presence there, is that he doesn't know how to communicate with the locals. He just has his, you know egalitarian American ways and they want him to kind of be somebody else. Uh, but since he's the boss, they kind of let him do what he wants. And so he's just kind of drifting in space, you know, at the start of the book. Yeah. And I mean, you even, you, now that you mentioned that specifically, I remember now when you say you kind of foreshadow that with, he doesn't want to be called the Duke, you know, like right. or Lord, like he wants to be called by his first name, first name or last name. Just, yeah. He, he's just like super informal. And that's kind of your first clue. Like maybe not your first clue, but it's a kind of doubling down on like, Oh yeah, this guy is not into this shit. Like he doesn't, <laughs> he, he just, he doesn't want to be here. Right. Um, he just wants to listen to records in his apartment, man. Exactly. So, <laughs> so yeah, so he's, his introverted tendencies are coming to the foreground and sort of taking over as social anxiety. That's what I'm trying to portray in the story. That, okay. That makes a lot of sense. So you mentioned, uh, you kind of got a little bit into your literary sources. Maybe you could elaborate on that a little more. Oh, sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I would say, 
um, the there's a story. Well, there's a few Edgar Allan Poe stories. I'm a huge Edgar Allan Poe fan. Um, I would uh, he's part of what I call the Trinity of um, you know American horror writer royalty. One of my favorite writers. He's not American. He's uh, he's British, uh, but he definitely influenced H.P. Uh, Lovecraft. Uh, and his name is Arthur Machen. Um and uh, he's uh, I think he's Welsh, and um, he wrote some very key novellas and short stories about the supernatural in the 1800s that H.P. Lovecraft read and was like, mm-hmm, this is what I'm going to write about, like when he was a kid growing up. Um, and um, one of Machen's stories, um, probably the most famous one, is called The Great God Pan. And um, it's about a lot of the things I talk about in this story, um, Music of the Wild. It's about um, the fact that there is way more to raw nature than human beings can perceive. And in the story of the great god Pan, there's a surgical procedure that's done to someone uh, very unethically. And then she can perceive nature as it really is, and she becomes completely corrupted by it. Um, and uh, yeah, it's a really freaky story. Um, it's very hard to get through because it's written in the style of the late 1800s, but totally worth it. That sounds really cool. Um, sounds like that movie with the shimmer. Yes. Um, yes. Where, you know, like all of a sudden people can see. You know, it's one of my favorite theories of like the world of like we have a veil that keeps us from seeing like, you know, um, for all we know, like if other things came to this planet, it just looks like burning hell. We're all actually dying and suffering, but we have a veil over us that makes it look all like, you know, a nice green earth. I, I have a lot of, of stories in this in this collection and not in this collection that uh, that are based on that theory. Cool. Um, that uh, absolutely, it makes logical sense to me. Even though I have never seen those things, I can never say for sure that that exists, that, that there's a reality beyond what we can perceive. It makes sense that it would, and we just don't yet have the science to prove it the way we used to not have the science to prove a lot of things that we know now. Yeah, in some ways, though, our science is like too restricted to allow us to think outside of conventional terms, you know, if Right. If it doesn't work with our math or our physics we have, then it couldn't possibly exist. Right. If it's repeatable, then science declares it a fact. Right. Um, but if it's not repeatable, and there could be lots of realities that exist that are not repeatable in, in, those, in those terms, that, uh, then that's declared bunk, you know? Some, peop some people I like that think about this, those experiences, you know, like mine with the ghost or people with alien abductions, is that the reason it's really hard to obtain tangible proof of these things is that it's a very personal experience for the person that it's happening to. And just like, you know, the guy said on the watch, he was like, Oh, consider yourself lucky. Cause it's like, not everybody gets to experience these, you know, and you could put a couple people in a place that's haunted to all hell. And one of them might only have an actual experience. The other people feel creeped out, but they don't actually experience anything. So I, I do in some way think, when you interact with those energies, it is a very personal experience and it's, you're, you're crossing over into like this other side of the physics we don't understand. And you know, energy, if you think of it logically, the way I explain it, like I'm not a, a religious person in any regards, but I think that <clears throat> there's energy that exists and like the human brain is, has enough energy to power houses. If you, you know, 
made it qualitative to like how you know regular electricity is produced mm. our brain could power a couple houses i think is like three houses or something is like wow. what they've determined where does that energy doesn't die it's kind of like a sound you know a sound a frequency a sound wave never really technically dies it just dissipates below our ability to perceive it sure yeah we so, just we just don't know how to harness it yeah and, and reuse it so energy could be the same way when you die is that our energy disp- dissipates below the threshold of our perception and perception is the key word and it's why i like audio is that audio adheres to a couple rules right audio is a physical um it's a, it's a physical embodiment you know it reacts to the atmosphere and, but it's also electricity Right. So it gets a little complicated because sometimes audio does whatever the fuck it wants to because it reacts to the space it's in. Right. And it doesn't have the same predictability that electricity has. Yeah. Electricity has a lot more predictability because of how we harness electricity now. But, you know, especially, um, you know, the fact that we have DC current and alternating current, we can kind of control the flow of electricity really well. But with audio in a room, you're, you're really at the mercy of like what the room can do and you can mitigate those things or you can help change it or help help the sound adapt to that room. But that's what makes sound so fun to me is that it really in some regards has its, a mind of its own sometimes. That Not only that, but um, I think it's, that audio is a great example of, of this because... We know because machines, we've made machines that are more perceptive than the human ear that can pick up uh, lots of sounds and quantify them in the ultrasonic and infrasonic spectra. Like you and I know this because we know about audio, Um, but human beings, normal human beings can't perceive them, those frequencies. But animals can, some some animals, and, um, you know, some people can hear certain parts of the spectrum, too. Uh, that normals can't, uh, but um, but that's great because that's that that can be proved scientifically because it can be repeated over and over again. You you know the frequency that's happening even though it's imperceptible to human ears. But why not um, something in the visual spectrum or something in the energy spectrum, electromagnetic or or something like that that we just don't have machines that are capable of charting yet? I mean, of course, why not? Oh, absolutely. Um, I mean, when you say that with frequencies not being perceived by us but animals you know because they have a different hearing range than we do and animals tend to feel things a little bit more than they hear things you know too they like sharks quite actually hear through their bones right Mm. Um, they are like a tuned kind of piece of material that absorbs sound and Mm. it's 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 cool how they work because their body is like a tuning fork um but Things, um, it's a concern the CDC's actually brought up, and it gets kind of debunked by some folks, but uh, there's a, a, here's a shameless plug. I worked on a documentary as a consultant for a documentary called The Pursuit of Silence. Oh. And the director, Patrick Shen, who, who wrote and directed the film, he wanted to explore the loudest and quietest places in the world oh. and, and show you what it's doing to us. And... There have been some environmentalists in the CDC allude to like, are we affecting the migration of birds and other animals, not just because of climate change, climate change is a factor, but what if there's this other factor we're not thinking about? It's this amount of sound we're producing on earth is exponentially louder every year. I mean, there's cities where you should probably be wearing hearing protection most of the time because these people are in an environment that's over 
85 dB all day. And that's really loud that that's just your life. Just normal life is that loud. And, uh, you know, I would probably say that any city that has hosted a Motorhead concert probably (laughs) has had changes in the flights of its birds overhead. (laughs) Oh, yeah. So, uh, yeah, I just wanted to mention, uh, like, Edgar Allan Poe, um, the fall of the house of, the, of Usher, I think, was a source for me. I mean, it had been years since I read these stories, um, but uh, the like a lot of the lines where I'm describing the castle and how the like the 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 corridors sort of disappear into darkness because they're so tall and the gas lighting like that. I, I know that that comes from Poe. Like that, it's just the the, the tradition of Gothic horror literature, like the extremely beautiful and the extremely grotesque, like all together in one story. Uh, and, you know, crumbling old castles that are, you know, kept in family for generations and and stuff like that are, are they're sort of metaphors for the state of the family, you know, um, and uh, I love stuff like that. And um, and that's uh, that's why I, why I wrote that. I do, too. That's why I like it when you read. Well, um, if you've been listening to this show, um, and Josh, certainly you know um, that I'm a huge fan of music, uh, especially classical music. And um, I grew up listening to to it. And um, obviously, I still work in film score, and I've been working in film score since the late 80s, um, which is a form of classical music. Um, but it's, uh, it's also a source of inspiration for me. Um, uh, my favorite piece of classical music is the tone poem, uh, The Rite of Spring by uh, Stravinsky. And um, it is just the most wild piece of music with an incredible story behind it about how it uh, totally blew the minds of the Parisians when uh, the Diaghilev Ballet first premiered it in Paris. Uh, and then it went, uh, in 10 years, it had become a work of genius and everybody in the world was appreciating it. Um, and we're talking about the, like, I think it premiered in the early 1900s, like 1910s. Um, and, uh, and then 10 years later, it was heralded as work of genius. And then 20 years later, it was used in Disney's Fantasia. Um, so it, it became so, it was something that was so reviled went to being completely accepted by humanity um, in such a short time. I find that really fascinating. And it happened during Stravinsky's lifetime. So I'm sure he was totally uh, blown away by, by this journey that the, the symphony took. But uh, anyway. So extreme music has always struggled with acceptance from an audience of where if, if it's something new or, you know, it sounds like that was the metal of its time. Like totally. Like people were freaked out by it. There's, there's this famous uh, story that I've heard um, where uh, Stravinsky went to play for the ballet uh, director. Um, his, uh, the ballet director's name was Diaghilev. And he went to play the piano, on the piano, the, the main uh, through line of Rite of Spring. And it's this intense like piano rhythm. It's like dun, 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 dun. And uh, Diaghilev is like... How long does that go on for? And Stravinsky says, for the whole piece, my dear. (laughs) (laughs) And ever since then, they knew the challenges that were ahead of them. Yeah, I mean, I think it's kind of cool that they're, with the history of music, you know, like, it's not just rock and roll that that had trouble with gaining acceptance. You know, I think a lot of people would just assume that, like, everyone embraced classical music. And it's like, no, there was some, like... Some outliers were like a lot of things Stravinsky wrote like that were just intense and like 
no one had thought of like, oh, can you just play a melody the entire time and do other things over top of it? Fuck yeah, you can. Like, shit, listen to half the music we listen to now. I mean, uh, that is dance music. You know, and like it's it's cool when you can like introduce a theme like that and then layer other elements over top of it, like, you know, uh, intertwine another melody into it or a harmony. And then it all of a sudden sounds like the song is changing and really you're essentially playing the same chords. But yes, um, yeah, it is. Uh, the Rite of Spring is a challenging piece of music, but it's also, uh, yeah, modern, uh, a modern approach uh born of the surrealist art movement. Um, and, uh, it's mind blowing. Um, and I think a lot of film score is based on that piece. Uh, you, you hear it every once in a while in the style guides or in the final music, like, Oh yeah, yeah, that's, uh, that's Stravinsky. You know, uh, that, that guy grew up listening to Stravinsky, but he's got a lot of great, uh, you know, other pieces of music too, but the Rite of Spring is just, just happens to be my favorite. So that's the one I wrote about. All right. Well, good. Um, <laughs> It was a lot of fun talking about this. Um, I even really enjoyed our little side tangent there. And, yeah. you know, it makes me think we probably, we, we should try to fit some more of those in because it's kind of fun uh, uh, segueing into our, our, the things we like outside of Victor's world of Inside of Fear and how uh, Victor and I are such good friends on the outside of this too, because mm-hmm. it, it'd be fun if you guys got to know us a little. Um, thanks again for listening. Uh, we look forward to... Our next episode with Victor, which is minute zero and one second. Is that how you'd like that read? How would you read it? I I read it zero, zero, one. Zero, zero, one. All right. Cool. Thank you. See ya.